the challenge is to understand that this difference that we are seeing in ideologies are fundamentally about an experience of technology where irrespective of the way in which you see it it is transforming the lives of people welcome to between the binary a limited series podcast highlighting the priorities prospects and challenges of technology in the global south through the voices of experts in and from the global south This podcast is curated for the John H MacArthur Research Fellowship Program in cooperation with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. I'm Elena Noor, one of the two inaugural MacArthur Fellows and your host for this series. Hi everyone. Today I have Ranjit Singh who is a researcher at the AI on the Ground initiative at Data and Society Research Institute. Ranjit studies the intersection of data infrastructures, global development and public policy. And I'm talking to Ranjit today because he has worked on is working on some really interesting initiatives like building a research community around the language of data-driven interventions and artificial intelligence AI in and from the global south mapping concepts keywords stories about these interventions and ai so ranjit welcome so nice to have you on here today uh, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what you're working on right now i mean i i've introduced you but to people listening they might not really understand what data driven infrastructures and ai means Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me into this conversation. I am delighted to be here and very happy to talk about some of the work that I've been doing. But I guess one of the ways in which I can explain this question around what data infrastructures mean and how we kind of think about them is to uh, backtrack a little and basically talk a little bit about how I came to this topic in the first place. So my dissertation research at Cornell University was kind of grounded in thinking through. India's biometric-based national identification system, Aadhaar, and at its face value, it's a database. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a collection of personal identity and information about more or less the entire population of the country. But at the same time, it's increasingly being used by the government to deliver welfare services and all kinds of other government services that are basically being organized through. this infrastructure model is so this turn from a database to an infrastructure is an important one and uh, this turn happens when a data set becomes a part of this wide variety of systems that kind of increasingly come to rely on it mm-hmm. so it's no longer just that you are a part of a database you're also implicated in your ability to be able to access government services because of the fact that you're either a member of this database or you're not and hence it becomes this sort of an invisible background on which the rest of the work of the government is happening so that to a certain extent brought me to a particular language around thinking about infrastructures and how uh, data sets become the kind of grounding for the rest of the work of and services to actually happen in the world so this brought me uh, this work kind of brought me to data and society because we were initially kind of interested in thinking about how do these systems kind of manifest in you know broadly speaking the global south and i've increasingly in my research also come to realize that global south is a way to address regions and geographies that are now increasingly 
n- not even now you know it's it's a part of how we have always thought of a wide majority of human population mm-hmm. that is a part of the world in which we think about these interventions but at the same time remains at the periphery of it in a way right so one of the ways in which we are uh, the the work on conceptually thinking about and the language in which we address these regions have increasingly come to treat the global south as the majority world and this is not a term that i invented myself the majority world was initially coined by shahid alalam who is a photographer and activist based out of bangladesh and he was interested in basically talking about how these different ways in which we kind of address these geographies whether it is third world or developing countries or global south they're all ways to basically talk about a sort of remaindering of certain parts of the world as opposed to the global north or the developed countries in a way so rather than actually looking at it from the perspective of something which is left behind let's if we invert that frame we need to th- start thinking about this this region as the places where the majority of the world's population lives and the way in which these places deal with these technologies and is equally important to the discourse of thinking about how, what these technologies mean to the world than what's happening in united states or europe so that's kind of where the idea behind language and conceptual vocabulary of ai in the majority world came about and uh, i've been doing this work for the last 2 years and it has increasingly developed into the relationship between concepts and stories and how we increasingly ground our understanding of concepts through stories that we tell about you know our work and where inspiration for our work comes from so that's one part of my work i also at as a part of the ai on the ground team i work on algorithmic impact assessment as a regulatory tool and uh, as a, and as a broad set of practices to basically mitigate algorithmic harms uh, i have been involved in collaboratively developing the research agenda of data and society around the data fight state and i curate again collaboratively a set of conversations on the digital welfare state so broadly that's what i do at data and society i'm involved in a couple of projects and you know partly i work on my own stuff and you know get other people involved in it and partly i'm involved in other people's projects doesn't sound like you have enough to do around it <laughs> <laughs> but this term majority world is such a a more appropriate and accurate way of framing how we look at things because you're right we often superimpose i guess other people's terminologies and phrasing of how we view ourselves in and from the global south and when you look at it take a step back and reflect on the fact that in fact we are the majority of the world becomes so much clearer so i really like this idea of inverting perspectives yeah absolutely you're right uh, i am you know i'm very happy to actually contribute to reinvigorate some of these conversations and you know bring out these existing efforts to reframe uh, what's really happening when we start thinking about global south as a place and uh, at data and society we have been thinking about this more in terms of you know how do we actually bring out some of this reflections and conversations and how do we put it together in a way where we can not only build some of the literature that is already in a part of the conversation and how do we actually feature it and you know make it more accessible but at the same time start to think about how do we actually think through some of this work through the lens of everyday stories of living with data and ai and how do we actually think about it as experiences and i'm collaborating with uh, sarita amrute and rigobert lara guzman both of them are wonderful people and have been you know really 
great to work with in the context of this project. So, you know, it's been a it's been a great journey. Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating. But so can you tell us a little bit about how these conversations and, and these discourses differ in the majority world on the one hand and the minority world, if you will, on the other, or, you know, global south, global north? Are they very different in these two parts of the world? Absolutely. I think when I started working on this, there was this initial idea that I had that, you know, oh, this conversation is kind of centered on AI ethics. And as soon as we start thinking about AI ethics, we are kind of grounded in conversations around fairness, accountability, transparency, bias. And then if you keep extending that, you kind of end up with responsibility, explainability. All of these different ideas are kind of centered on scholarship that is emerging from the United States and Europe. There's a lot of conversation as well as thrust that is basically put on thinking about how do we actually think about these technologies as tools that are something that we can control. So if we can control them, we can make them more fair. We can make them transparent. We can make a machine explain itself, right? So it's fundamentally based on the idea that, you know, these are tools which are subject to our control in a way. And as I was kind of moving away from this literature and trying to look at, okay, what are Latin American scholars thinking about? Or what is what are African scholars thinking about? Uh, what does the scholarship of South Asia kind of look like in this space? And you increasingly kind of encounter a very different sort of conversations. There's a part of it uh, which is kind of borrowed and thought through in terms of notions of extraction and how, to a certain extent, all of these technologies are designed to basically consider human population as assets. And mm. it's not like, you know, this conversation is not happening in the minority world, for example. There's a whole set of conversations around the attention economy and how people are treated as assets. But when you kind of pay attention to how this is happening in the majority world, there's a much more focus on what this conversation to a certain extent means for technologies that come from you know, the minority world to the majority world in a way. But at the same time, that does not simultaneously mean that these technologies are not being built in the majority world, right? Most of the interesting interventions that currently we are contending with or thinking through in the world have been tried out and are usually experimented on in the majority world before they actually now move back. So the circle to a certain extent has kind of transformed, become very different. Uh, the flow is not one way anymore in a way, right? So these technologies are not being built in the global north and coming to the global south. So that's the first assumption with which I began to think about this. Well, what happens if we kind of start thinking about the majority world as the site where not only these technologies are being produced, but also that it is a place where you can actually start thinking about a decolonial imagination of what these technologies might look like. And uh, how do we start thinking about these different ways in which these concepts come about? So a whole wide variety of concepts came about. Started with extraction, but then moved into solidarity, dignity, there are ways by which, uh, you know, this conversation kind of then became about sovereignty and uh, how we start thinking about forms of social protection and experimentation that kind of come together because of the way in which these technologies are kind of talked about, experimented with and, you know, tried out uh, in different parts of the world. So, you know, a classic example, for example, is that most of the financial inclusion work or conversations that happen are modeled around the success of MPSI in Kenya, right? Mm -hmm. It was one of the first implementations that became really successful. 
and then a whole set of conversations on financial inclusion kind of borrow or kind of draw inspiration from this idea that if mpesa can work in kenya it can work anywhere in the world and the same goes with aadhaar if biometrics can work in india it can work in anywhere in the world and there's a whole set of conversations in the world bank where basically the designer uh, and the chairman of the unique identification authority of india at the time nandan nelikani went and talked about india's great investment in biometrics and how it is basically transforming and you know the power of digital id as a way of to transform the, the country and all its services so as you see there's a core set of differences that you can actually start noticing now one is that in the global north or the minority world in a way this conversation is kind of centered on treating these technologies as tools in the global south or the majority world these conversations are kind of treated as an experience you know mm. you experience these technologies and as an experience it becomes a part of not only trying to make sense of what these technologies mean for me as a person but also me as a community me as a country right and that is the scale at which this kind of moves forward so you know when it comes to data sovereignty there's a part of it which is about the data of my community belongs to my community and there's a part of this conversation that simultaneously belongs to the data of my nation state belongs to my nation state so there is a reaffirmation of territoriality which is increasingly a part of this conversation primarily because you know you treat data as an asset right so as soon as you kind of take that underlying principle of if data is an asset or property then the way in which we talk about these technologies kind of changes dramatically so first layer of this problem is how do how are these technologies really thought about and worked out in different parts of the world the second part of this problem is how is data thought about in different parts of the world and how is it different in different contexts so increasingly there is a there's an over reliance on the discourse of data as property or asset mm-hmm. or data as capital which kind of then underpins a lot of conceptual developments that are that are happening in this space as well so these are broadly the two different ways in which i have kind of thought about this problem one is how do we think about the interface between these technologies and you know people so you know are people controlling these technologies and what that relationship kind of looks like and you know can we actually often to a certain extent in in the way in which us policies are usually imagined and the discourse that is happening in in the united states there's a very adversarial relationship between data and people right either you have to control ai or the ai will overtake you but at the same time if you kind of move to japan for example you would easily realize that there's a conversation there which is about oh my relationship with ai is about me learning from it and it learning from me right we are mutually shaping each other and these are very two very distinctly different ways of thinking about our relationship with these technologies and how we regulate them so in a way broadly there is partly a conversation which has needs to be had around what is our relationship with technology and there's partly a, a conversation to be had around how do we conceive of our data and how do we treat it and in between the two you'll see all variations of concepts and ideas and stories that come about right and you are really kind to introduce me to the concept of when vivir in latin america um and of course there's all this african scholarship emerging about the concept of relational technology through uh, traditional notions like ubuntu for example so i assume these would fall within that spectrum of in between right let me push you a little bit so if there is this conception of data as an asset versus data as an experience isn't one of the reasons why we see these notions of data sovereignty crop up say in indigenous communities even in the global north/minority world 
is because there's this attempt to reclaim that experience as something territorial and communal that was extracted from during colonial times and, and ongoing through imperial practices. I mean, isn't that still happening now? And so in a way, the line between data as an asset versus data as an experience is a little more blurred than perhaps we might imagine. I completely agree with you. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, there is there is no denying of the fact that, you know, these technologies are embedded in this larger, you know, economic, first of all, an economic structure of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. So data as capital makes sense right. in a way, because a lot of the investment and a lot of valuation of the companies that are doing exceptionally well uh, in the space right now is kind of based on the fact that they have massive tropes of data, which eventually creates uh, the value that the, uh, that a company actually brings to the table, whether it's in terms of advertising money or whether it's in terms of, uh, you know, just the fact that some sort of personal data allows you to basically know the human population in a very different way than was possible earlier, even 10 years ago. And that to a certain extent, combined with the historical set of inequities that a lot of these communities have dealt with, means that you know, they're of course protective of what this means for them. And you know, if it's just a reinforcement of their prior experiences with colonialism, with different forms of extraction and exploitation that has always been a part of their experience in a way. But at the same time, it's also projected, thought through, and articulated as a way to produce empowerment and emancipation and a way to basically provide people with the tools and the capacity to basically have their own lives on their own terms, right? So this does not mean that one way of thinking about this is you know, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they're happening simultaneously. And even in that moment of them happening simultaneously, one of the core features of understanding the implementation of these technologies is that they they produce difference. That's the core of what implementation of data-driven technologies means. They, they work for some at the expense of others. So they're always constantly producing difference. So even when there are parts and members of communities who are using their data to be able to actually engage with the formal economy of a nation state or to be able to use their own data in order to basically produce their own employment records, for example. What they're doing is that they are participating in a system that has been created in a way which kind of extends the logics of capitalism in the space of information, right, in a way. But at the same time, it also doesn't work for other people for a wide variety of reasons, because fitting into the core categories of an information infrastructure is difficult. Uh, And it becomes increasingly more difficult when you don't conform to the kind of norms that, you know, you're generally expected to just have in a way, right? So, for example, a core feature of most of the identity documents in the world is that you're supposed to have a residential address. It simply discounts the fact that there are a lot of people in the world who don't have a fixed residential address, who move a lot. Some of them may be homeless, right? And what these technologies do is to exacerbate that difference uh, because it makes it easier for certain people uh, to do certain things at the expense of other people who would really like support of these technologies, but it doesn't work for them the same way as it is expected to. So I personally think that what is happening in this present moment is that we are looking at data from our own particular standpoints. 
what we are doing is that you know if we look at it from the logic of development we will basically say this is a way to leapfrog this is a way to transform societies if we look at it from the lens of colonialism we will say that this is a way to extract more information and more uh, and put people into spaces and exploit them in new and increasingly more effective ways it's a difference not only in terms of perspective but also in terms of what part of the reality are we looking at they're happening simultaneously well given that so much of this is almost subjective you know the spectrum between transformation for developmental purposes which many nation states are really enthusiastic about and and the people in them are enthusiastic about but also this risk of neo colonialism through data capture and data extraction on the other hand what what's the solution to bridging these two very seemingly contrasting objectives because at the heart of it is almost an ideological debate isn't it between capitalism and and something else an alternative to the extractive nature of capitalism to its greater extent it's a it's a profound question i also think that you know personally i would say that the challenge is to understand that this difference that we are seeing in ideologies are fundamentally about an experience of technology where irrespective of the way in which you see it it is transforming the life of people so now the question becomes okay these technologies are here they're going to be used in a certain way how do we start thinking about communities people countries for whom these technologies might work differently what is the way in which people can determine for themselves what kind of data ecology do do they want to develop within their own country within their own community for themselves as a person and i think the question of bridging the, the these perspectives is a, is a, is a really tough one primarily because what happens sometimes is that you know when you put two people of very different ideologies in the same room we often talk past each other rather than being able to talk to each other so part of the way in which i think about this particular problem is that let's take a step back from ideology and let's start looking at okay what's really happening on the ground in terms of people's everyday interactions with this technology because in both these ways of thinking about it whether it is thinking about you know this leapfrogging and digital transformation or whether it's thinking about neo colonialism they're both discourses of control in a way you're trying to control what this technology will basically do in the world but more often than not if you look at it technologies are a weird mixture of control and contingency in the sense that you know there is a part of it that you want to intend and that you design so that you know certain things happen in the world because of the way you specifically designed it but then there are part of the things that happen in the world because that's how the world is in a way right uh and i think there is a there is a way by which we need to start thinking about what are the different extra factors contingent factors of implementing a particular technology in a particular place which kind of make it successful or you know uh, make it unsuccessful depending upon you know how people react to it in a way so for example a lot of financial inclusion technologies don't work as you intend them to right in the sense that you know you can easily imagine for example microcredit to work in certain communities and not work in other communities right it has nothing to do with the logic of microcredit itself it has 
a lot to do with how these communities come together, how they kind of have internal relationships with each other. So in, in many ways, I think, you know, the more we start paying attention to these technologies, they'll have different results in different parts of the world. We can't actually create this one uniform discourse that explains what's really happening with this technology across the world, because that would be doing injustice to the fact that we live in a beautifully diverse world where, you know, while there is a, there is a way by which classification technologies tend to bring order to this diverse, uh, you know, ways in which the world ex- uh, is kind of operates, they also inevitably fail and they fail in different ways in different parts of the world. And they also work in different ways in different parts of the world. Estonia is very ha- seemingly very happy with its digital ID. And we are still debating over whether uh, digital ID is creating the conditions of, you know, marginalization and surveillance in different parts of the world. So personally, I think that the way to bridge this is to understand that, you know, there's, a, there's going to be a lot of difference if you kind of start looking at on the ground as to what these technologies are doing and who is benefiting from it and how do we ensure that people who want to be a part of these systems and are unable to be a part of these systems for a wide variety of reasons. What are the mechanisms for them to become a part of this community? That's where the core set of concerns should lie in a way, right? How do we manage the difference that is being produced by these technologies? Yeah, and I think in uh, an earlier conversation that we had, we talked about, you just talked about bringing it back to reality and on the ground experiences, but it's also a matter of being guided by this larger principle of what is the end goal of technology, right? Is it to empower, preserve, uphold dignity and justice, or is it just a means to another end? Um, and, And so maybe that is something to always keep in mind when thinking about technology and as you say, how it affects different people in different places. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. Also because, you know, they can do both of these things. Technologies can be empowering. They can be. They can produce justice in a way in which they are kind of designed and implemented and thought through. They're also just a means to an end. And how we define that end is important. So does that mean that people like us from the global south, living in the global north, we are a bit of each, right? Because obviously human beings are complex. We have compound identities. If I or you were to talk about accountability and explainability in AI, Will we have to code switch if we were speaking to a, an audience in the minority world versus in the majority world, right? We do that every day in ordinary speech. And so yeah. what it means to be accountable for AI algorithms in one place may mean something else in another place. True. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is a great question for a wide variety of reasons. The first time you mentioned it earlier in our conversation before we started recording this, uh, I initially thought about this really weird phenomena in India where if you go to a point of sale machine to authenticate your identity in order to secure your welfare entitlements, the machine kind of announces what you're supposed to do. So it'll tell you things like, you know, put your finger here. Now we are going to give you this uh, entitlement because your number is confirmed to belong to you, right? So it's kind of a way to announce and speak out not only the process of authentication, but also what your entitlement is and what you should be receiving. And I'm like, is that explainability? Is the technology explaining itself in a way? And it does a wide variety of things. What it's doing is that one, there's a recognition of the fact that people may not understand what this system is and how is it working. And they would not know what to do in relation to it 
and while simultaneously ensuring that you know the fair price shop owner is not basically telling them that they're only entitled to 10 kilograms of food when they're entitled to 25 right because it announces it it tells you that this is what you're entitled to it certainly works because uh, to some extent it's about you know not having access to a deeper understanding of how the technology works it also works in the context of overcoming the challenges of literacy but it's not explainable in the same sense of explainability as we imagine it to be how did you come up with this decision in the first place now that explanation of how did we come up to a decision and there's an expectation around there which is kind of centered on oh you need to be able to understand certain parts of the machinations of how this technology works for that explanation to make any sense to you right i can explain why you denied your entitlement in a wide variety of ways i can say that you know oh your authentication didn't work or i can say your authentication didn't work because your fingerprint that you're currently provided does not match to the one that is in store for these reasons right and i can go into a wide variety of reasons as to how the encoding of fingerprints works in the context of uh, the design of a, you know a biometric system at times when we think about these things uh, we are simultaneously thinking about it from, at a wide variety of levels we are thinking about it in terms of literacy we are thinking about it in terms of uh the quality of the explanation and we are thinking about it in terms of where in the world are we based in in order to make sense of what explanation would be most legitimate and legible in this context and as people who are based in the global north being out of the majority world we simultaneously do both of these things where we are thinking about okay this explanation works for you because this is the language in which you would understand it but i can also place myself into a very different context and think about the same technological solution and say that it would not work for these reasons and i think it puts us in a really unique position it puts us in a position where we can see differences more clearly because you know our experiences of the difference we are constantly reminded of that difference i distinctly remember moving to different parts of the world i i've lived in netherlands i've currently lived in the united states and each one of them has a very different way of organizing its services and its bureaucracy and all of these differences kind of map out to how we kind of imagine our interactions with the government and how which data systems work and which which are better organized as opposed to other systems in a way so i think that the breadth of that experience and the breadth of uh, these different sets of life life experiences in different countries puts us in a unique position to be able to kind of take a step back from one particular way of thinking about this and be okay with thinking about it in a completely different way and then place ourselves in the middle of these two discourses right so so this is how i think about development for example right a development and the discourse of development is centered around the imagination of technical solutions that is based on viewing a different country at a distance now if you're based in that country and you come and start thinking about the same technical solution you will be at least five steps ahead because you're not that distance is a lot less of you and i think that's an important part of the skill set that we offer in thinking about the difference in policies and thinking about why certain simple solutions can often do much more work in the world than really complex solutions and the simplest example of this would be you can figure out a really complex machine learning algorithm to figure out who is eligible for welfare and who is not you can also at the same time 
make an argument that you know most of the government websites in the world and this is not just about the us it's more or less across the board work better on computers than they do on mobile phones while most of the people in the world actually access most of these systems through their mobile phones it's harder for people to navigate an interface that is designed for a computer when they're trying to use a very small phone to actually do the same thing if we simply kind of just think about you know let's make a better mobile interface for these government websites it would solve quite a few different problems that you know a machine learning algorithm may solve in the larger scheme of things but at the same time this is a much more it's a much cheaper intervention so then the question this is also the other thing that you know the code switching kind of brings about we're always able to think about a very low tech solution to a really complex problem <laughs> right. right well assuming people with mobile phones even get access to the internet right or even connected that's a whole different set of other issues but you're right absolutely it just goes on so many layers of complexity right ranjit i can talk to you for hours um because you always manage to prompt and provoke so much thought at so many different levels of depth uh, into some very superficial questions um but we're going to have to leave it here thank you so much for these insights for bringing it back to us on the ground and we hope to continue reading more of your work and hearing more of what you have to say thank you thank you so much elena for inviting me this has been wonderful thank you so much for joining us i hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and found the conversation useful This podcast series is made possible by the John H MacArthur Research Fellowship in cooperation with the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, Canada's leading think tank on Canada-Asia relations. To learn more about the fellowship or the foundation, be sure to visit asiapacific.ca.